We are moving along in our study in Romans. Going to pick up reading in verse 1 of chapter 2. As Paul is turning his guns toward the Jews, he's, he's showing in this section Gentile and Jewish guilt and need for a Savior. And he's turned now to, after exposing the world's sin and suppressing the truth, he's now going to show how God's covenant people have done the same, the Jews have done the same thing. They've suppressed the truth in a different way with a different dress on, but same end result. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things, referring back to the end of what we have as chapter 1. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of His kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patient, patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. The Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Let's pray together. Lord, help us as we look into your word. Help us to, to understand it, to apply it according to our need. If we don't know you, that we would apply it in repentance and faith and turning to Christ for salvation, for justification, for acceptance with you, Lord. If we do know you, that we would apply it in, in growth and grace. So help me to preach your word in the power of the Spirit. Help us to hear it as your word in the power of the Spirit. Accomplish your purpose in our hearts. Save and sanctify your people. Bless, Lord, both the preaching and the hearing of your word. We look to you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. He was sure he was right with God. He never really doubted it. He was born into a believing family. His parents had done everything according to God's word. He had received the covenant sign. He was part of the congregation. He, he was taught the faith. He grew up studying the word, devouring it, memorizing it. His outward conduct was blameless. 
He went on to study under the best teachers. Rose into leadership. He was a shining example of devotion. All had confidence in him. And he had great confidence in his own relationship with God. For he had made many sacrifices to serve him. And he was very zealous in his service. Surely, surely he was ready to meet God. You might have guessed that I was talking about Saul or Paul, the apostle. If he had died before the Damascus Road experience, he would have been lost. Great religious activity is no sign of right relationship with God. See, there are many in the church today who are counting on their great religious activity. My wife was worried my mic was not on. Many, many are counting on what they do. They have grown up in it or they've come back to it later in life. They never miss a Sunday or a Wednesday or a prayer meeting or a Sunday school. They read their Bible. They give. They serve. But are they ready to meet the Lord? Saul had been saved by grace alone on the Damascus Road. Now he loves and mourns for the Jews, his fellow Jews who think they are right with God, yet they are not. We'll see a lot more of that when we get in, on up in chapter 9 and 10, that he's, he's even willing to sacrifice himself to lose his own soul if they can be saved. So he deeply loves his Jewish brothers and sisters, and he mourns for them. So remember, it is out of love that he confronts them with the bad news. It would have been unloving for him not to. See, we have to remember that. We're studying Romans chapter 2. And we're going to see an exam today. And it's a good exam both for the Jews who might read the epistle in the day after he wrote it for, for the church there in Rome. It's a good exam for us. We all need to be prepared for the judgment. Are you ready to stand before the Lord? So we've begun our study in the, in the book of Romans and we saw Paul's uh, introduction and his greeting and just the, the depth that is there. We've seen his desire to go to Rome and preach the gospel to the church. We've seen his summary statement of the epistle where he says that the gospel, he's not ashamed of the gospel. Why? Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And you see that language in the text today. To the Jew first, also to, to the Gentile. See, there's one gospel needed by both, Jew and Gentile. The Jews don't get a special pass, regardless of what John Hagee and others might say. You need to run from people like that. Jew first, Gentile gospel, 116 and 17. Jew first, Gentile judgment. One standard, one level playing field. 
And in, in, you want to understand the first part of your book of Romans, we get the introduction up through verse 15 of chapter 1. We get the theme statement in 16 and 17. And from chapter 1, verse 18 to chapter 3, verse 20, what he's doing is sharing the bad news that makes the good news good news. He's sharing the universal need for the gospel before he actually shares the gospel and the benefits of the gospel. See, he doesn't start with God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Don't start there. That's not where we start. Paul Washer said, good, I love me too. Right? If he loves me, he won't hurt me. No, the bad news is we're all lost and need a Savior. And we establish that from Scripture. And we, that's what we see him doing. He's shown the guilt of the Gentiles. And the Jews would have been, yes, as Corey said last week, get them, get them, Paul. Get him. And now he's turning his guns to show that the Jews are in the same boat. Lost and needing a Savior. Today we're going to look at just a few verses uh, in chapter 2, verses 6 through 11. We're really springing off verse 5. Corey did a great job on verses 1 to 5 last week. I'll point you back to that if you missed it. But we're going to expand upon what you see at the end of verse 5 there. That's why I used it as the title. The righteous judgment of God or God's righteous judgment that's what he's expanding upon when he starts in verse 6 so here's what I want you to take away today prepare for judgment by embracing God's perfect standard of righteousness and his punishment of the wicked that's our main point prepare for judgment by embracing God's perfect standard of righteousness and his just punishment for the wicked. First, first point. Prepare for judgment by embracing God's perfect standard of righteousness. Look, at, look in verse 6 where he expands upon, where he says, God's righteous judgment, the day of wrath, that should call, cause fear, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. What is that going to look like? What is that going to look like? What, how could it be described? Now he's describing it. And look how he expands upon it in verse 6. He, God, will render to each one according to their heritage. According to their deeds. That's a, that's a general statement. It, it, we find that a lot in Scripture. But He will render to each one Think of it this way, what they deserve. And see, we want that to happen to, to famous pounding boys like Hitler and people like that. Yeah, they should, we don't want them to get away with it. But it says he's going to render to each one according to their deeds. He's not going to treat anyone different than the other. You look in verse 11, God shows no partiality between Jew and Gentile or between, he's not a respecter of persons. We are all his creatures. We are all under him and his law and we have a, a we are in accountability to his commandments and there's coming a day when he will judge and render to each one according to his works he's going to examine each one's life each person life will be examined his or her thoughts his or her words and his or her deeds. 
Look what Jeremiah said after talking about how desperately sick our hearts are. In verse 10 of chapter 17, he said, I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind. That should frighten you to death, especially if you don't know Christ. I mean, he knows your thoughts before you think them, Psalm 139. Your deeds before you do them. He knows you way better than you know yourself. And he says through Jeremiah, I search the heart, I test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. And I could quote a lot of verses. There's more than just this two this morning. But I just brought two, one Old Testament, one New Testament. Even the book of Revelation ends this way where Jesus promises to judge according to our works. But here in Matthew 16, 27, he said this, For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father. And watch this. And then He will repay each person according to what He has done. And and some people might say, well, I'm okay with that. I think I've been pretty good. I'm, I'm good with that. Because I look at so-and-so over here, and listen, they're way worse than I am. I'm in church every day or every week. I'm in my Bible every day. I pray. I give. I I thank you that I'm not like this tax collector. But see, God's not going to compare us with one another. He's not going to let you bring out your favorite whipping boy or girl that you're better than. Look at his standard. It says he's going to render to each one according to his works. Verse 7. Watch this. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. To those who by patience and well-doing. What does that mean? Patience and well-doing. That word for patience there means perseverance. It means endurance. It means persistence. It means doing something continually. So he's not just talking about those who are occasionally good or mostly good. His judgment, he says, these are the people that will have earned eternal life, those who are persistent in well-doing. They're not just doing good occasionally, but continually. They're doing good, that is doing good from the right heart, in the right way, as determined by God. And listen, he's not like, parents never hide the rules for your kids and then punish them. He's not been that way. He's made the rules clear. In fact, he wrote them on our hearts. We'll talk about that next week. But we're talking about His law. What, is, what, is, what does it mean to do good? What does He mean? Patience in well-doing. This is how they seek for glory, honor, and immortality. And those who are patient in it or persistent in it will get eternal life. You see, eternal life's at stake. Don't forget what He's doing in this section. He's setting up universal need. This is not talking about a Christian. It's not talking about our sanctification. It's not talking about any of that. He's setting forth his standard, God's standard, and he's applying it to Jew and Gentile. He will render to each one according to his works those who by patience and well-doing. 
What is the well doing? Well, it's God's law. It's the Ten Commandments. That's what defines sin. Every sin filters back underneath one of those commandments. See, the, the sin against adultery, for example, doesn't just forbid adultery. Adultery is the genus. It is the head for all sexual sin. And all sexual sin falls under that. It's God's Ten Commandments. And if we're going to earn life, we have to do that by keeping them in thought, word, and deed. Not just in externals. Paul looked great outside. Remember, he was blameless in the righteousness that is according to the law, he said. His his peers would have looked on him as a shining example. And yet he had a stony heart. A wicked heart. A self-centered heart. See, if we're going to be persistent in well-doing, if we're going to be doing good, if we're going to be living in good works, it means patient, persistent, continuous obedience to God's Word. Good works or doing good is keeping God's commandments, but it's not just externally keeping God's commandments. Paul said covetousness ate him up. What are good works according to Scripture? Well, listen to this list. You want to know if you've always been good and never been bad and if you've been devoted to good works since you were born? In order to qualify as a good work, it flows from the inside out. So number one, in order to be a good work, in order for it to be true obedience to God, it has to be done for the glory of God. The main focus has to be the glory of God. What is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? So uh, true obedience is first and foremost done for the glory of God. I'm not doing this thing because it will advantage me primarily. I'm not doing this thing because my friends are doing it primarily. Right? If I have a right heart, I'm doing it first and foremost for the glory of God. So secondly... Glory of God. Secondly, a good work or true obedience is done according to the Word of God. And specifically, in keeping His Word, His law. See, when we come to Christ, we're not under the law, but that doesn't mean we don't have any relationship to it. But before we come to Christ, we're under it, and we have an obligation to our Creator to keep that law, to fulfill that law in thought, word, and deed. I'll tell more about whether we've done that later. But a good work is done for the glory of God. It's done according to the Word of God. It's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the fruit of the gift of God, which is faith. And listen, number five, if none of that got you, it proceeds from a pure heart. If any of you say you were born with a pure heart, well, we need to talk. Unless you are the very rare example that was regenerated in the womb, like John the Baptist. That's not true. We are born sinful, David said. And sin did his mother conceive him, and it wasn't his mother was sinning. You hear people say stupid stuff like that. He was born in sin. We're born vipers and diapers, as Vodibachum would say. Until God works in our hearts by grace. He has to different and different temperaments and all that. 
But we're born turned inward. We're born focused on self. We're born doing what we want to do because we want to do it. And God must change that. See, God's requirement here is persistence in well-doing. It is keeping His law in thought, word, and deed. It is being perfect, as Jesus said. You must be perfect. Your righteousness, He told them. And this would have freaked them out when He told them, your righteousness must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. They were the religious heroes. They were lost as a ball in high grass. Some of you are justifying your lifestyle and you're lost. You need to be saved. God's requirement. If you're going to be saved, if you're going to save yourself, you're going to have to keep His law perfectly, perpetually from a right heart. Leviticus 18.5, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, then he shall live by them. I am the Lord. The verse 7, he's saying, Seek for glory, honor, and immortality by well-doing. See, they're seeking for glory. If we're doing it right, we're seeking for glory in the glory of God. We're seeking for honor in the honoring of God. We're seeking for immortality in life with God. And if we're persistent in well-doing, that's what we get. God doesn't grade on a curve. He's not going to elevate the grades so that a right percentage of people pass. We'll be perfect in thought, word, and deed or we'll be lost. And that's the dilemma. Look at it. It's repeated down in verse 10. Glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does good. The Jew first and also the Greek. Remember what doing good is. Remember what defines doing good is. We'll talk a little bit more. But to everyone, literally, the way that's put together in the original language, literally, to everyone who is working, see the continual nature of that? To everyone who is working the good. Who, everyone whose persistent lifestyle is godliness the way God defines it. If you will pass this test, you will do it. On your own merit. By a perpetual, perfect, right-hearted obedience to God. If you would etern, earn eternal life. See here, in the context, we cannot forget the context. People lose, they lose their grounding in some of these verses in this section because they forget what Paul is doing. If you want to know what a person means in a particular portion of their argument... Look at their conclusion. Look where they're driving. Look where they're taking you. Right? And that will tell you what they're working towards in the midst of their argument. He's explaining God's standard of judgment and showing that both Gentile and Jew fall short. He's speaking to the Jews who were cheering in chapter 1 and are now gnashing their teeth. He's proving universal sin and therefore universal need from the, for the gospel. Verses 7 and 10 set out the condition apart from Christ for attaining salvation or eternal life. 
If you would be accepted by God, you must be good. Which means you must have kept God's law in thought, word, and deed from cradle till now. No other gods before Him. You've never desired anything more than you've desired Him. Are we done? Are we done yet? We've never worshipped in a way that's not according to His Word. We've never dishonored His name. We've always honored His day and had Him first on the Lord's day. We've never been angry without cause at another. We've never looked on another person with lust. We've never taken anything from anybody, even a paperclip. We've never desired what our neighbor has and thought we'd be happy if we had it. We never lied. Are we done? It's like a chain. Break one of them, you broke the chain. Think about the rich young ruler. He didn't really even know what good was, and Jesus sort of started to straighten him out there. Matthew 19. Good teacher, what must I do to have eternal life? Now, did Jesus know his heart? He could see right through him. But was he gruff and mean to him? No. But he did ask him a question. Why are you calling me good? He said, do you know who you're talking to? And do you know what you're talking about? Answer, no. And what did Jesus tell him? There's none good but God. Implication, including you. Think about what you're saying, right? But he's, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What did Jesus tell him? Keep the commandments. Now, that seems gospel cross-purpose to us, doesn't it? Why didn't he say, believe in me? Because he, like Paul, was starting with the bad news. At first, he was going to show this rich young ruler that might turn out to be John Mark, according to tradition. He was going to show him his failure before he showed him how it had been met. And so he told him to keep the commandments. And he said, which ones? And Jesus listed the, just the second table, which is our relationship person to person. And the, the ruler, he said, I've done all of this. And Jesus wasn't as snarky as I would have been probably. Um, but in my own heart, it would have been, really? Let's start with number one. But, but that's what Jesus did. When Jesus told him to go sell everything he had, he was taking him back to commandment number one and showing him who his God was. And he failed. And he went away sad. But I think he eventually was converted. It says he went away. Jesus loved him when he left, right? But he had to see his failure before he was ready to give up on himself and receive Christ as his Savior. He failed the test. And Christ lovingly... Isn't that so compassionate the way he did that? Christ showed him that he failed the test. How, how, how do we do? How are you doing? If I ask you the diagnostic question... If you died today and stood before God and He should ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? 
what would you say? If you start with you, you don't understand. If you start listing off, well, I do, I do, I do. Hmm. That's what's getting you in trouble. See, God's perfect standard that applies to Jew and Gentile is perfect, perpetual obedience if you would have eternal life. Number two, point number two, prepare for judgment by embracing God's just punishment of the wicked. How did they do? How did the rich young ruler do? How do we do? How did the Jews and Gentiles do that Paul is talking to? I told you to look where the conclusion to see where he's going, and I'll just give you one part of it. We'll get there eventually. But look in verse 12 of chapter 3 of the book of Romans. Actually, I'm going to back up. You can stand a little more reading. I'm going to start in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks or Gentiles, non-Jews, are under sin as it is written. And then he starts quoting the Old Testament. None is righteous. Not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. And in the verse I had my notes. All together have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. Now watch. We've talked about being good so that we have eternal life. Now look at his conclusion. No one does good, not even one. That's what he wants the Jews to see. I've been greatly privileged to be a Jew. I've been greatly privileged to have God's commandments, but I have not kept them. I have not done good. I need a Savior. That's where he wants Jew and Gentile to end up. So that's what he's hammering at in verses 6 through 11. Remember Rock of Ages and buckle your seatbelts. Because we're going to look at the payoff for sin. God's just judgment of those who do evil. So after giving that standard of perfect perpetual obedience, now look what he, he contrasts and turns. And we've already seen we all fall short. So look at verse 8. But for those who are self-seeking, instead of God-seeking, and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. If we do not obey the truth, His Word, His law, therefore we obey unrighteousness and we justify it, right? But this is the payoff. Wrath and fury. From front to back in the Bible, on the day you eat of it, on the day you sin against me, you shall die. Both physically and eventually, you know, spiritually and eventually physically, you will be under wrath because of your sin Going on in Scripture, the soul that sins that will die. The wages of sin is death. And that's not just physical death. It is where physical death came from. But it's spiritual death. Separation from God under His condemnation. Wrath and fury. Does that sound like what anybody wants and is seeking? You've got your head screwed on backwards if it is. For those who disobey God, wrath and fury. 
Jesus contrasted eternal life with eternal condemnation. And the level of sin depends on who you sinned against. If you slap me, that's one penalty, right? If you slap the policeman that shows up, that's a higher penalty. You go to court and jump up on the bench and slap the judge, bye-bye. You see, it depends on who you sin against. Imagine how serious it is to sin against the eternal everlasting God. To be separated from Him forever. To be under condemnation because you deserve it. Why do I deserve it? Because you haven't kept the law in thought, word, and deed. You've rebelled against God just like Adam and Eve. You deserve it. Look what he says. Wrath and fury. God's wrath, just wrath against sin. He's holy. Why does that happen? He's holy. He could not be holy and sweep sin under the rug like grandparents do with their grandkids. But none of you want him to sweep Hitler's sin under the rug. Or, Mal, or you know, you go down the list. We all want him to sweep ours under the rug. But he's holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah was convicted when he realized his sin. So look at verse 9. This is our experience under wrath and fury. And I hope none of you do experience that. There will be tribulation and distress for, just hit learn a few others. Every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. Tribulation, trouble, anguish, distress under the wrath of God, being separated from all that is good. You're, you, you know, hell won't be an absence of God. It'll be an absence of His grace. The devil doesn't punish anybody. He's a rebel just like the rest. Flee from the wrath to come. That's what Scripture says. And that's how Paul describes the Thessalonians, that they had done that and turned to God from idols. This is something you'll never hear Joel Osteen and people like him tell you. Therefore, you should run for your life. If they don't love you enough to tell you the bad news, they're about them, not you. Run for your life. I don't mind saying that. People get mad. I've had people say, well, I like the old Osteen. Well, <laughs> stop it. <laughs> Popular is not necessarily right. Amen. And if nobody mentions wrath and sin and punishment, they don't love you. Because there's coming tribulation and distress for every human being that does evil, and that includes you. Because Paul says we all fall short. For God shows no partiality. Same for Jew and Gentile. Jew just like Gentile needs the gospel. And that's where we're going. It's a just punishment. Revelation says this, the smoke of their torment rises up forever and ever.
Jesus, when he was portraying the rich man in Lazarus, you can go read that in Luke 16, but when the, the rich man says this, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And imagine knowing it would never end. And one of the reasons it'll be forever is people don't repent. Anger, gnashing of teeth will continue. Hatred of God will continue. I shouldn't be here. Really. It's heartbreaking to think about. Imagine standing before God and all your thoughts, words, and deeds were, were on the screen, were rolling on the screen. It'd be crushing, wouldn't it? And they're compared to the Ten Commandments. Listen. Listen to me. You can read and check it out yourself. Jesus spoke more about judgment than love. He spoke more about hell than heaven. And He was very clear about it. Even to say, using hyperbole, you should cut body parts off if they're what's causing you to go to this place where the worm doesn't die and the fire is not quenched. Whatever's causing you to sin, you should have it removed from you. Well, what causes us to sin? Is it our eyes or our hands? It's our hearts. We need new hearts. See, this is a warning we need to hear. And as good religious folk, we don't like to hear it. We not only need to hear it, we need to share it. Quit telling pagans God loves them. Tell them they're under condemnation. Tell them the bad news. Tell them all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and will perish, die, and spend eternity in hell if they don't repent and trust in Jesus. That's how Jesus spoke. Repent or you will all likewise perish, he said. We've got to get out of this cultural Christianity because I'm telling you, this is one of the scariest verses I've ever read. And in fact, I stand on good ground because a church I used to go to, R.C. Sproul, came and preached from this very text. And he said it was the scariest verses he knew of. I'm talking about Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Watch this. I'm going to be slow as I read it. It's not enough to make a profession of faith if it's not coming from a heart of faith. Matthew 7, 21 to 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, stop. In Hebrew, when you repeat a name, it's for emphasis. And you're claiming intimacy. Not everyone who claims an intimate relationship with me has one. Not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now watch this. This is Jesus talking. On that day, what day? Judgment day. Watch this. Many will say to me, Lord, Lord. See, they're, they're claiming intimate relationship. Were we not very religious? Look at this list. Did we not prophesy in your name? We spoke for you. 
And did we not cast out demons in your name? We had powerful works. And we did. It sums it up. Many mighty works in your name. Lord, Lord, Lord Jesus. Didn't we know you because we did all this stuff? Now watch what Jesus says. Y'all pay attention to me. I know this is not comfortable. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Not I knew you once and you lost it or anything such thing as that. I never knew you. Doesn't mean he didn't know about them. He knows about everybody. But no is that intimate relationship that they were claiming they had, they didn't really have. I would declare to them, I never knew you depart from me. Now he tells why, you workers of lawlessness. See, they claimed an intimate relationship with Christ, but their life was one of lawlessness. Their life didn't back up the claim. Now, we will never in, be perfect in our thought, word, and deed until we're glorified, but God does sanctify those He justifies, and there will be evidence of a new heart and a change of life when we truly are converted and come to Jesus. Now, think about the tragedy of this. Think about it if the Apostle Paul had died before Damascus, when he should have. He, he didn't deserve conversion. He would have been condemned and rejected. Think about the tragedy of, of being raised in the church maybe and growing up in the church or coming to the church or coming to make a profession of faith. And, and maybe you're one of the 20% who does 80% of the work in the church. These people were busy. But I don't want any, I don't want to hear it and I don't want any of you to hear from Christ on that day to part from me. I never knew you. And your life shows it. If I can prepare you to die, I've prepared you to live. And until you're ready to die, you're not ready to live. And if you really hate hearing this and just wish I wouldn't say it, you're probably not ready to die. It hurts and it's grievous, but it's truth and we embrace it if we know the Lord Jesus. Let me just give you a few points of application and I'll leave you to the Lord to go think about this. Let me ask you the first question. Have you prepared for judgment by embracing God's perfect standard of righteousness? Or do you think you can be good enough because you're going to compare yourself with other people? Have you been perfect in your obedience to God in thought, word, and deed? If you will listen to the Word of God, the right answer is no. I have not. I deserve condemnation. Have you prepared for judgment by embracing God's just punishment of the wicked? See, this is where, one of the places where Jehovah's Witnesses came from. And Russell just came out of the Millerites and, and, and none of them believed in um, hell or eternal punishment. They believed in annihilationism. Why? Because it didn't make sense to them. The, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses wouldn't believe anything that didn't make sense. He was a rationalist. 
So he explained a lot of stuff away. That's why he couldn't grasp the Trinity or the two natures of Christ or all of these things. Lean not on your own understanding, right? Have you embraced God's just punishment of the wicked? Have you seen that you fall short and are in danger of condemnation by God? See, that's what Paul wanted his Jewish brothers and sisters to see. You have privilege of being a Jew, but that doesn't mean you're right with God simply by who you were born to or what you do or where you go to synagogue or you have the Torah, all of these. You've been circumcised. We'll talk about that later. If you fall short of perfect perpetual obedience, you are lost and in danger for hell. Sermon's over. Go home. Man, you don't want me to leave you there, do you? Uh-uh. See, but, but listen, if you've, if you've embraced the first two, you're ready for the third. If you, if you see that the standard, if I'm going to earn my way, I must be perfect, and I have not been perfect. Therefore, the wages of sin is death, wrath on the wicked, right? So I embrace God's just punishment. It's what I deserve. Ask you this last question. It's the only way to be prepared. Have you prepared for judgment by embracing Christ as your Savior? The Son of God, the Messiah, the only begotten Son of God, the only Savior. Jesus Himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Peter said in his sermon before the enemies, he said, there's no other name given among men by which we must be saved. You certainly can't be saved in your own name. And you can't be saved in Allah's name or Buddha's name or no matter what George Harrison likes to sing, Harry Krishna's, you know, all that stuff. There's only one who rose from the dead proving it all true. Have you prepared for judgment by embracing Christ? See, if you really do one and two, Christ is the only answer and you will embrace Him. And doesn't this highlight the importance of... of his obedience and sacrifice. What theologians like to call his passive obedience and his active obedience. Because if we're going to get into heaven, it's going to be by perfect, perpetual obedience. And only one has ever done that, and that is Jesus. But also, having seen how far short we fall, if we're going to get into heaven, it's going to be because we have somehow been cleansed and forgiven of our sin. And that happens by His sacrifice. The Lamb of God, pure and perfect, pictured by all those serv- uh, sacrifices in the Old Testament, is Jesus. And John the Baptist said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just the Jews, Jew and Gentile who come to faith in Him. See, Jesus didn't just come out of heaven and go on the cross and die. He was born and He lived in fulfillment of His own law to provide a righteous standing that we do not have. And then He died to pay the penalty for our sins. Taking the wrath and fury. Remember we were reading tribulation and fury and wrath and distress. and this. He took all of that on the cross. He was God and man so He could drink that cup dry on the cross. He took eternal hell for you and me and every one of His people all on Him. That's why He sweat blood the night before. He knew what He was facing. But being God and man, He finished it before He gave up His Spirit. And He said, it is finished. 
to tell us die, paid in full. If you will have Jesus as your Savior, if you will repent and trust Him, you can know that He paid your debt in full and He earned a perfect righteousness for you. When you come to faith in Jesus, all of your sins are gone. And it's better than that, though. You're not just sinless. By imputation of His righteousness, you are then clothed in His righteousness, adopted into God's family, being sanctified from that moment, and will be glorified and taken all the way to heaven. See, as we see in these verses, in order to be accepted by God, we need both forgiveness and perfect righteousness. We need a persistence in doing God good and an atonement, a cleansing for our sin. And we have both in the Lord Jesus Christ. Will you have Him? Do you trust Him? Or would you like to trust yourself? I'm telling you, if you trust yourself and you stand before God without Christ, you will be condemned. Justly condemned. Because you've broken His law in thought, word, and deed. You do not have a record of persistent obedience that Paul shows is God's standard. But if you will trust Christ, even with a weak faith, see, it doesn't matter how much faith you have. It matters whom you're trusting. Christ died for a weak faith, just an unbelief, just as much as He died for adultery or anything else. And He was patient with the disciples, wasn't He? He will be patient with you. When we back up to the wall, if someone backs us to the wall, who are we trusting? For God, Kids, for God so loved the world, right? You all know this verse. That He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes into, literally believes into, trusts in Him, shall not perish, that's the wrath, tribulation, distress, but have eternal life because Christ has lived for them. Christ has died for them. Christ has been raised for them. He is reigning and He's coming again someday. But it'll be too late when He comes. Remember, He's coming as conquering King and Judge when He comes back. I urge you, I plead with you to abandon all hope in yourself and everything else and trust in Christ and in Him alone. See, Christ mercifully saved self-righteous Saul. And forgave him. And made him an apostle. And he's the one that's testifying here of the way to salvation. He's the one that's trying to prepare us for the judgment. Are you ready? Have you trusted in Jesus? If not, I pray that God will shake you and convict you to the core and grant you true repentance and faith before it's too late. And if you go away from this sermon saying, well, he didn't convict me, boy, that's nothing to drag about. This means you've been given over. It doesn't mean it's too late while you're taking breath. But it means you have a serious problem. Turn to Christ and be saved. And if you have turned to Christ, I want to ask you to do this. If you're trusting in Jesus, if you know you're right with God, not because of you, but because of Christ, I want to ask you to love your neighbor. I want you to see the danger your neighbor is in. 
And I want you to seek the Lord for the boldness to talk to them and to be willing to tell them both the bad news and the good news out of love. And tell it, Christ will save all who turn to Him. He took our condemnation. He fulfilled all righteousness for us. And He gives it as a free gift to those who trust Him. Trust Him. Live for His glory. Rejoice if you're persecuted for it. You'll be ready for that day if you do. To live is Christ. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy on those who are hearing my voice who are not trusting you. Maybe even some of them think they are. Destroy all false assurance, I pray. And grant repentance and faith and true assurance. Maybe there's people listening to my voice who who really know you, but messages like this cause them to shudder and doubt. If they are really your children and just have a tender heart or weak faith, Lord, confirm them and strengthen them. Humble the proud. Bless and grace the humble. Cause us all to look to Christ and Christ alone for our salvation. I pray for children to be saved, Lord. For teenagers to be saved. For 20-somethings and 30-somethings and married and single and widowers. and pray for you to work salvation and sanctification in your church. Revive and refresh us, Lord. Grant us the boldness to love you and live for you. And the boldness and the, the burden and the dedication to speak for you. And help us to encourage one another in the faith. Every day. Lord Jesus, may we deny ourselves and take up our cross and follow you. Lord, build your church through your word. It's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen.